I'd invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark, Mark chapter 14, our scripture passage is verses 53 to 65, it's what we looked at last week. I'm also going to add an additional scripture reading, Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll see as we get into the message how these two passages connect with what we're going to be talking about today. So, Mark chapter 14, uh, beginning to verse uh, 53, reading through verse 65, and then Hebrews chapter 1, reading from the English Standard Version translation. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in their midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now turning to Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe By the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be the one illuminating our minds as we come to consider your word this morning. Uh, Guard all that I say and guard all that we would hear. That through uh, just the feeble means of of one man preaching the word, uh, you would do your great and gospel work of bringing your truth to our hearts so that we might know you, the ever-living God, and Jesus Christ, your Son, and in knowing you, have everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we return to this passage to conclude what we were looking at last week and what this story is all about, and that's that's the trial of the Lord Jesus before the Jewish high court. Again, what we see here are the religious leaders of Israel, uh, the very Sanhedrin of the Jewish nation, conspiring against Jesus, who is their Messiah, putting him on trial, and in the act of doing this, they're truly putting God on trial because there's no truth that's more central to the Christian faith than this, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the incarnation of God. What they're doing against Christ, they're doing against God. Now, that's why we need to see the trial here as nothing less than uh, how we introduced it last week, God in the dock. Uh, the word dock there being a, a British term for when they put people on trial in England, the accused would either stand or sit in the dock. And C.S. Lewis said the interesting thing about modern man is he puts God on trial, whereas in all former ages, uh, it was God who put humans on trial. We all look to God as the judge, but modern man looks to themselves as the judge with God being the one that they're judging. So... Last Sunday, our message covered really two of the three things that uh, I find quite significant in this passage, which focus our attention upon what human nature is truly like before God. It shows us what human nature is fully capable of doing apart from the grace of God. It shows us that the human race, fallen in Adam, is at enmity against God, at war with God, hostile to God, hostile to God's truth. And so what we saw last week was that human beings will actually indict God and accuse God for no good reason. In fact, many of the things that you read that are said against God, uh, atheist blogs and so forth, or complaints against God, amount to nothing more than the actual human evil that human beings perpetrate against other human beings. They, they put the finger on God when they should be putting the finger 
upon man's own inhumanity to his fellow man. We also saw last week that, that human witnesses will witness against God and then lie in terms of what they say with respect to God. And we see this carried out in false religions. Uh, we see it in atheistic philosophies. We see it even in so-called scientific theories of the day, which basically say our science tells us there's no real need for God, no real basis for believing in God. So when people act as human witnesses about this world, about the cosmos, about creation, they will in their evil act as witnesses against God and his truth. The, the third lesson that shows up in this passage, and what we're going to be looking at this morning, is, is how human beings will operate in their capacity as judges. And that's what we see in terms of the Sanhedrin. And in terms of acting as judges, they will, in fact, pervert justice, and they will condemn the God who is the true judge, the judge of all. So, in looking at the, this passage this morning once again, looking at that third major point, human judges judging God, I want us to see three things. Truth, that which is true, will be judged as blasphemy. Secondly, justice will be, will be perverted into injustice. And then lastly, hu human evil will expose itself for what it really is, cosmic rebellion. Now, the, the main truth, the overarching truth that, that pulls all of this together, that's tied into Mark's great theme of the gospel, we could state it this way. Mark's great theme is the story of Jesus that Jesus is the good news, the gospel from God. Because even in this story, we see how deeply human evil is poised and pitted against God. Nevertheless, the whole theme of the gospel of Mark is that in spite of the way human nature is, Jesus is willingly taking the path to the cross to provide redemption, to provide forgiveness of sins, salvation. Even for those who were his own enemies, those perpetrating evil against him, to fulfill what Scripture says, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that's how to place the story of putting Christ on trial, putting God on trial, in the midst of the whole story of Mark. How does this story fit into the mission of Jesus to be the good news of God to bring salvation? This story reveals the depth of human evil, which only then magnifies the greatness of the love of God. If God would so love a world that descends to this depth of evil, then how inscrutable, incomprehensible, how magnificent, how great is this love? And then how great the love of Jesus that he would willingly come into this world where he would be treated ultimately with injustice in a way that no other human being has ever been treated truly this way in terms of injustice. And to do it for his enemies in order that he might provide a ransom for many. That's what this is about. The story of putting God on trial is ultimately a story about how great God's love is in Christ for those who would do such a thing to the Savior. Now, 
my first point this morning is really almost the whole message. So it's, it's going to be long, so don't worry. <laughs> wow, the first point of this long, we're going to be here all day listening to the second and the third. No, it won't be that way. But the first point I see to be the most significant point in terms of looking at human beings as judges against God. And so we can state it this way, that in the hostility that fallen human beings have against God, the truth will be judged. The truth is always judged as blasphemous, even against God. Now, we see this specifically in verse 64. Uh, that's where the word blasphemy and a charge of the high priest comes up. But we've got to put this into its context of what's going on here in the trial. So we pick up the storyline again at verse 61. Jesus has been entirely silent in the face of all of these accusations, but they're false accusations. He's been entirely silent in the face of many accusations. Many, many accusations. But they're false accusations. And he's been silent. But when Jesus is then placed under oath by the high priest, and we saw that this is what's taking place by looking at Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. When the high priest uh, puts him under oath and says, I assure you by the living God, then Jesus is going to respond. Now, in both Matthew and Mark, the question that's put to Jesus is, in terms of its substance, identical, even though the wording is somewhat different. For instance, Matthew says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Mark says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, some people quibble over this. They say, see, your, your, your Gospels contradict each other. Well, that is such a kindergarten-level kind of criticism. Because anyone who knows anything about the Jewish background, the history of these things, translations, records, and so forth, will recognize that what's going on here. Mark is following the, the pattern that the Jews had rather consistently to never say the word Yahweh. Well, we don't even know what it really was in Hebrew. We modernize it and say it was Yahweh. Uh, the, you know, the, those Hebrew, the Hebrew name of God, I am. So they would use euphemistic terms, or they use alternative terms. So instead of saying God, they would say the Blessed One. Or they would say uh, the Throne in Heaven. Or the Most High. Or the Majesty on High. They would use all these different terms so they wouldn't say God. Well, that's what Mark is doing. But Matthew, uh, essentially, I suppose, because he's speaking to the Jews, is sort of dispelling that superstitious view. And he says, you know... <laughs> Are you the Christ, the Son of God? He's not afraid to say God. Either way, it means exactly the same thing. The question is exactly the same. Are you, Jesus, are you the Son of God? Now, the answer that Jesus gives is absolutely straightforward, unambiguous. It's an unmistakable assertion. He says, yes, I am. Then what Jesus adds, you need to understand as a powerful emphasis and support for what he said. It's not just simply Jesus says, yes, I am, and leaves it at that. What he says is what really makes it clear to the high priest what Jesus is actually claiming. 
because he goes on to say, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, these words have one primary meaning in Jesus' testimony. Jesus is claiming for himself that he fulfills these Old Testament statements, these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They're found in Psalm 110. They're found in Daniel chapter 7. So Psalm 110 goes this way. This is David writing. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in Daniel chapter 7, we have verses 13 and 14, which read this way. So Daniel's saying, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus points to these passages by what he says, he's essentially telling the high priest, I am that person. I am David's Lord, who will sit at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. I am that one who will have all dominion and all glory and all of the everlasting kingdom and all peoples and all nations and all languages will serve me. Jesus is making the strongest possible claim that he is the eternal Son of God. Now, the importance of this answer is this. Everything about the Christian faith rests upon the identity of Jesus. Everything rests upon the identity of Jesus and what it means for him to be the Son of God. Now, basically, uh, there are three possible meanings for what Jesus meant by saying that he is the Son of God, assenting to that. So let's consider these, because these have been raised by people who want to dilute or diminish what Jesus has said. So you have people today who will say something like this. Well, so Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. All of us are children of God. All of us are sons and daughters of God. If God is the creator and God's the father of us all, then all of us are brothers and sisters in God. All of us are sons of God or we're daughters of God. So, you know, you can't really say Jesus meant more than that. Well, if that's all he meant, you wouldn't find the high priest charging him with blasphemy. So right there in the text, we know that that, that is a, a sad and seriously deficient kind of understanding and criticism of, uh, of what's going on. Just, it undersells the story completely. But then you can think about another category. And this category uh, has been proposed in the history of church, always been judged as a heresy. But the idea is this. Well, the, the angels of God are called sons of God. Uh, we see this in the book of Job. The angels of God come together as the sons of God. Maybe that's the category that, that best answers what Jesus is saying here. 
he's a son of God because he is essentially an angelic being. Well, but we remember every angel is a created being. An angel, even the greatest of angels, would, be, would not be eternal and would be finite. Such an angel would have a beginning. Uh, the difference between God and any created thing, no matter how great that created thing is, still remains an infinite distance. So look at the book of Hebrews, the first chapter. Because there the writer of the book of Hebrews actually addresses this issue of the relationship between the Son of God and angelic beings. Uh, I have discerned no less than eight specific lines of argument that he presents here, and it's all based upon uh, a huge amount of Old Testament passages and evidence that he brings together. So first of all, he says this, God created through the Son everything that has been created. That's verse 2, Hebrews 1. Through whom also he created the world. Now, angels are not co-creators. Angels are never credited with creating anything. They don't have that power. Uh, The second idea is found in verses 3 and 4. The Son sits at the right hand of the majesty on high with a superiority as much greater than the angels than the name that the Son has inherited is greater than theirs. So, that proves he's something distinct and different from the angelic beings. Third, then, though, that greater name is grounded in how God addresses the Son in a way he has never addressed the angels. He says in verse 5, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Further, he says, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. So Hebrews is saying that the sonship of Jesus is not the sonship of any of the angelic beings. But goes further. Fourthly, the matter of worship. In verse 6 we read, And again when he, meaning God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Only God is supposed to be worshipped. That's the entire faith of the Israelites. That's the entire message of the Bible. Worship God only. But God says to the angels, Worship my son. Fifthly, verse 8. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 45, God speaking to the Messiah and about the Messiah actually calls him God. So we see this. But of the Son, he says, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So God calls his own Messiah, his son, God. Sixth, in verses 10 through 12, you have the Old Testament Psalm, Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, presented. And these words are directly applied to the Son, applied to Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. 
Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So the writer of Hebrews directly applies a creation passage in Psalm 102. He directly applies it to Jesus the Son. He says that's Jesus who laid the foundations of the earth. It's Jesus who formed the heavens. He's saying Jesus is the creator. Seventh, verse 13. The writer makes the point that God has never said to any of the angels, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then eighth, all that the writer uses, all of this he uses to support what is his first main point in the text, going back to verse 3, where the writer to Hebrew says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint or representation of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this writer to the book of, he- of, the book of Hebrews has proven from the Old Testament itself that the Son isn't any created angel. Uh, Even some vastly great super angel, the Son doesn't belong to that category of being at all. Well, that leaves only a third possibility of what Son of God means. If it doesn't mean a human being like the rest of us as children of God, if it doesn't mean an angel, even the greatest of angels, then what we're left with is the category of the divine only. And that's exactly what we've been reading. Uh, The third possibility, that to be the Son of God means you are the Son of God in the sense that you are God partaking of the nature of God. That's what he has made so clear. When Jesus claims to be the Son of God, he is claiming to have the very nature of God. And Paul has identified that as being true. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, where the, the apostle says, for in Christ dwells the fullness of God of deity in bodily form. This is what the church has always faithfully and truly confessed. We see it so clearly at the Council of Nicaea. We see those great uh, pronouncements about Jesus given to us then in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is the Son of God. He's true God and true man. He's the only begotten Son of God. He's God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with God the Father. Again, Jesus' identity is the central belief and the central conviction of the church. And that has several very practical implications for us as Christians. First, if you believe in Jesus, you must believe what Jesus believed. Which is to say, you must believe in his view of the Bible. And his view of the Bible is that it's fully inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant. To believe in Jesus is to believe in his view of the Bible. It's also to believe in Jesus' view of the human condition. Uh, Jesus believes that human beings are born sinners, that they are lost and that they are on the road to perdition. That's the human condition. That's what Jesus believed. If he is the central 
point of the entire Christian faith. We must believe what Jesus believed. But we also must believe what Jesus said specifically about human sin. Not just the condition, but human sin itself. So that what the Bible truly calls sin, we must truly call sin. It doesn't matter what the culture tolerates or endorses. The moral code of Jesus, the moral code of the Christian faith is very demanding and it's very strict, especially with respect to marriage and human sexuality. We are on the wrong side of God, even if we think we're on the right side of history, if ever we call something okay that the Bible says is wrong. So we have to believe what Jesus says about human sin. And then also his view of salvation. Jesus was very clear. He's the only Savior. There is no salvation anywhere except in him. And he put it this way. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. So we have Jesus answering the high priest, the most significant question about Christianity. Who is Jesus? And Jesus says, I am the Son of God. Everything we would ever want to understand about Christianity rests upon that confession and that conviction. There is no Christianity apart from Jesus. There is no Christianity apart from Jesus and his declaration that he is the eternal Son of God. Now, in the story here, though, we have the high priest and the Sanhedrin hearing this, and then we have the judgment that's made by the high priest and by all the highest of the Jewish leaders of Israel on the answer that Jesus has given. And that's where we come to the word blasphemy. What does blasphemy mean? Because they're going to use it. Well, blasphemy in the Bible means to speak in an untrue manner that specifically insults God or offends God and offends against his truth. Blasphemy always carried the, the, the connotation that it was a third commandment violation. It was taking God's name in vain. It was misusing the name of God. And blasphemy, according to the Old Testament, and therefore in Jesus' day, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, blasphemy always required capital punishment. Anyone convicted of blasphemy would automatically be sentenced to death. So the high priest, he charges Jesus with blasphemy. Jesus declares the truth. He is under oath before God to speak nothing but the truth. And when the high priest hears the truth out of the mouth of Jesus, he calls it blasphemy. He charges Jesus with bearing the worst kind of false witness about God, slandering God, insulting God, breaking the third commandment by Jesus' own truthful assertion that he is the Son of God. So how should we look at that? What, is this, what does this tell us? We should see this for what it truly is then. It is how the truth is received, judged, and rejected apart from the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, 
This is the default setting of the human race. You've got the priests of Israel. You've got the scribes. You've got the Pharisees. You've got the elders. You have this whole uh, complete Jewish council. There might have been, if everyone was there, there were 70 members there. Maybe not all of them made it, but most of the council was there, according to the way the stories present it. They have viewed and investigated Jesus nonstop for three years. You can't read the Gospels without seeing again and again and again someone representing the Jewish high council uh, interfering in what Jesus is doing and accusing Jesus all along the way and even witnessing things which Jesus does again and again and telling him, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that, even though the works that Jesus was doing were in fact the credible evidence of who he was. So in spite of all that evidence, all of that evidence that substantiated that Jesus was sent from God, and then even in contradiction to all of that evidence, these men, who have the best set of circumstances to examine Jesus fairly and without any prejudice, they fail to do so. Completely fail to do so. And then they bring their verdict. The truth Jesus speaks about himself they judge as blasphemy. The most important truth about Jesus is rejected. The most important truth that would bring about their own salvation, they have judged as evil. And this will ultimately bring their doom. Because here's the truth. When God is on trial, and God speaks on his own behalf, if the message is believed... It believes eternal salvation. If the message is rejected, it brings everlasting perdition. So let's focus again then on on what this tells us about the fallen world. God's truth is constantly under attack, and especially the truth about Jesus. So don't expect that when you Talk to someone about Jesus who isn't a believer. Don't expect that you will necessarily get a fair hearing. It's an unbiblical expectation that you can sit down with someone, even in a friendly context, and have them listen to you fairly and without prejudice. It's an unrealistic expectation based on what the Bible says about fallen human nature. Time and again, the truth which is in Jesus will be judged as untrue before God. Nevertheless, you and I are called to be witnesses about the truth. In Jesus' earliest teachings, he said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, this is going to occur because the world loves darkness rather than light. At the same time, Jesus told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. It's our calling as Christians to bring light to the world, even the light who is Jesus. You and I do not control the outcomes. It is the Spirit only who gives light and life. Now, 
to wrap this up, last two points, briefly. The second major point out of this passage is this, that in the hostility that fallen human beings have against God, what should be a verdict of justice will, in fact, be perverted into injustice. We see this in verse 64, because the whole council, uh, hearing what the high priest says, what further need of witnesses do we have? You know, you've heard the blasphemy, and the entire council condemns Jesus to die, so truth is condemned. Now, here's the irony. The one who came to give life and to give it abundantly is now condemned to death. Final point. In the hostility that fallen human beings have against God, human evil will be exposed for what it truly is, cosmic rebellion. Cosmic rebellion. Putting God on trial, which they did in putting Jesus on trial, tells us how far fallen human beings will go in their rebellion against God. Human evil is warring against God. Putting Jesus on trial and moving against Jesus in this miscarriage of justice tells us that if it were possible, human beings would destroy God. They would snuff him out of existence. They would obliterate all of his evident presence in this world if it were possible for them to do so. Human beings consistently fulfill in this manner what was prophesied in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds asunder, let us cast away their fetters from us. The human race is in cosmic rebellion against God. Now, the frame of reference concerning all of this with which we need to finish. Nothing in all of Scripture so clearly reveals how much fallen human nature is hostile to God than the way Jesus is tried and condemned. The, the index of how fallen the human nature is is found in the story of the rejection of Jesus, the condemnation of Jesus, and the crucifixion of Jesus. The index of how far we have fallen from God and, and how far in Adam, in that fall, we have now warred against God, how much we have loved darkness rather than light is illustrated so deeply in this story where the human race shows itself to be the enemy of God. Yet, this God against whom we have rebelled in this cosmic manner sent his son, Jesus, into this world on the mission of the good news that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and to save those who were lost, so that whoever would come to this salvation by surrendering and trusting in Jesus would be forgiven and redeemed from all of this horrific evil which is intrinsic to who we are. Jesus came 
so that all who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. That's the good news. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us as Christians to hear the word and to recognize so deeply that nothing more clearly demonstrates um, how far we've fallen from your glory than uh, what we as human beings have perpetrated against the truth. And 2,000 years ago, uh, what the leadership of Israel and then even uh, the Roman leadership in Palestine at that time, what they all did in conspiring against your son simply illustrates what is in all of us in our inheritance in Adam, a cosmic rebellion against you. Nevertheless, that ancient promise was this, that you would bring about the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent, that you would bring about your own son coming into this world to be a propitiation for the sinfulness of man, that in Christ you would be reconciling the world to yourself so that all who would call upon the name of your son would be saved. Father, that's the gospel of the old covenant before Jesus came. It's the gospel of the new covenant since Jesus has come. That ultimately, we are called upon out of this rebellion to kiss the Son, to come to Him, to know Jesus, and in knowing Jesus, find ourselves no longer at war with you, that the cosmic rebellion has ended in us and that we have become yours, reconciled to you through the blood of your Son. For this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.